Welcome to episode 22 of the Guns and Yoga podcast. My name is Wendy Hummel. In today's episode, I speak with retired police veteran Roger Rugi. Roger is the author of Navigating Adversity Tactical Self Care for First Responders. He's a podcast host, a professional trainer, and a resilience coach. We discuss Roger's career, how police officers tend to over identify with their careers, his passion to guide other first responders to be healthier. He also discusses an incident that led to his PTSD diagnosis. He refers to this as his triggering incident, and we wrap up with a brief meditation. Roger discusses his healing journey and his realization that his engagement and high-risk behavior, both at work and in his personal life, were disguised as his daily attempt to take his life. When Roger finally decided to get help, back at that time, stigma was even more of a factor than it is today but he knew that he needed to sacrifice outing himself rather than to lose everything, including his life. I really enjoyed my conversation with Roger and quite honestly, I get so excited when I find someone who's just as passionate about ancient and holistic practices such as mindfulness and meditation and who also understand that these simple practices can really help first responders in a tremendous way. These teachings of nervous system restoration don't have to take long. In fact, they just take a few short minutes and that can make a profound shift in our physiology. I see no reason why these practices should not be taught day one in the academy throughout our entire career. And with the same importance as other skills such as handcuffing, firearms, and defense tactics. Roger explains the return of investment in this three-minute mindfulness practice that he walks us through. If you find value in this episode, I encourage you to share it, give us a review, and if you'd like to be notified of future episodes, you can subscribe on our Podbean website or email us at wendy at bluelineyoga.com. I also have an exciting announcement. I'm launching a program in January of 2022 called Radical Resilience. If you want to build resilience and adaptability into your physiology by optimizing the rhythm of your daily habits, or you want to tap into your unique purpose and potential and learn these habits in a dynamic group setting, then this program could be a good fit for you. One thing that I have learned from years of doing peer support is that evolution really happens faster and easier in a group and improves success in achieving goals. If you struggle with low energy, overwhelm, chronic pain, inflammation, difficulty falling asleep or staying asleep, irritability or burnout, this curriculum is based on 10 holistic lifestyle habits that can help you feel your best regardless of what stage of life you're in, where you're at in your career. Radical resilience empowers you with the knowledge and practical tools to thrive and heal. These are things that I've been teaching to first responders for several years both in a group setting and one-on-one, but putting it together for a small group over a long period of time in a group that works well together has been shown to improve success in achieving goals. I'd love to hear from you with questions, suggestions for future guests or topics that you'd like to hear about, or if you'd just like to learn more about this program. Remember, you can reach out to me at wendy at blueline You can also reach out to me on LinkedIn. Welcome to the show, Roger. So glad you could be here today. Oh, it is such a joy to be here. Thank you for the invitation to be a part of your community. 
Well, you know, I, I was doing a little bit of stalking, but not in a, not in a bad way. <laughs> we talked about that before. Um, but I, I think I found you on LinkedIn. You know how I just love the community. We were talking about that. It seems like all these people that are into this wellness space with law enforcement, somehow we all seem to, to find each other. And when I saw all the awesome things that you were doing, um, I, I was so happy that you re you know, when I reached out to you, that you were so responsive and I just, I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. It's my joy. Our brothers and sisters that are in the first responder community and especially law enforcement right mm -hmm. now, they need this extra support. They need to have a little bit of wisdom, guidance, new ideas, things that come outside of the traditional box that is very important. That box is critical and there's more work to be done. So as far as I'm concerned, anything that raises that bar is an easy yes. Oh, well, we're, we're so glad to have you. And so very briefly, I want everyone to know how awesome you are. So, so not only are you a, a police veteran, um, but you are an author and I've been reading your book and we'll talk about that. I can't wait to talk about it. You're a public speaker, a trainer, and a coach. You are a podcast host and the founder of Hero Talk, which is also the name of your podcast. And I'm I'm sorry if I'm leaving things out, but you have a long, you got a long resume. <laughs> so uh, could you tell us, uh, it's been a little bit since you, you, you retired, I think about 18 years ago or so, is that right? Yeah, 2005, um, I went kicking and screaming out the door. <laughs> So yeah, if we could back up a little bit and you could just kind of tell us a little bit how you got started in law enforcement. You know, I always like to ask people how they got to that to that point in their life because some people like me always knew from an early age they wanted to be a cop and then other people, that's not their path. So just curious what yours was. It is a curious journey. And um, so I grew up in San Francisco and in the 1960s, dating myself radically right now. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, they did something that was called a racial integration, and the nickname for it was busing. So the busing idea was they would take kids from different sections of the city, which was highly segregated, and they would switch schools, and they'd just kind of mix and match. And the idea was to to get the races to blend together and you know it's the 1960s we're trying to do all these different social experiments so i went into the inner city of san francisco and i'm in essentially one of the poorest areas of the city i'm in what is essentially an all african-american school and i'm now one of the only white kids and so a lot of uh, bullying abuse anger uh, came my way and I got hard real fast in that environment. And the thing that was interesting about it was I was very small for my age. I was one of those people who didn't really get his man size growth till he turned 18. So I was just tiny, skinny, not very good at sports. I was easy target. Mm -hmm. And as my strength came, and I had been through just years and years of bullying. I mean, school for me was was fear you know going to school was not joyful it was fearful because i didn't know where the next attack was coming from and sometimes i was beaten so badly that i was just left there on the ground bleeding and uh you know this is a hard environment so as i came into my strength i started to realize wait a minute 
I don't need to be bullied anymore. And I was really fortunate that I didn't turn the corner radically on that and become the bully, the guy paying people back. I just didn't take anybody's crap anymore. And that's it. I didn't seek problems. I didn't look for problems. In fact, I'm to this day the type of person that will simply walk away unless you leave me no choice. But then if you leave me no choice, I'm going to win, guaranteed. And I thought to myself, you know, what if I could use this power, this strength that has come into me in service to community while I protect others who can't protect themselves that were like me? And so that's where my incentive to become a police officer came from. And then I, I started studying criminal justice in college, and one thing led to another, and I joined the police force in 1986. Wow. So, um, you know, a lot of what you're saying just rings true with a lot of people that I've talked to, and their stories are different. Not that everyone has been bullied, but what you said there towards the end about just wanting to seek justice, and I'm, and I'm not using the same words you use, but seeking justice and, and trying to help those that can't help themselves and, and using your experience and, and trying to, to make the world a better place. So I, I commend you for that. Yeah, thank you. It was um, it was a hard journey, but it shaped me into a person that could mm -hmm. serve. And so I, I look back on it and I'm grateful, but it wasn't easy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when you turned your corner and you studied criminal justice and then you joined the the police department um about how old were you at this point 26. okay all right so not 21 not like as early as you could have been but but not you're still not too old at this point yeah yeah i i wanted to um to get a four-year degree mm -hmm. which at that time was pretty rare you still had a lot of officers that were essentially coming out of high school yeah. And that, that was it. They had a GED or they had a high school diploma and they were entering. But when I studied the profession and, and I was advised by some people that were, you know, a lot more down the road and wiser than I, they said, get that four year degree because it'll get you better pay. It'll get you promotions if you want that. It's going to make everything easier in the academy. And so I decided to get a four year degree in criminal justice. And so once you started with your agency, what kind of a sign? I mean, we all start on patrol, but but after that, <laughs> we have no choice. So what did your career look like? What were the different assignments that that you worked within? Well, I was so blessed. I got to work for two agencies. Okay. And I was with my first agency for about five years and then my second agency for 15 until a pretty severe back injury said, uh, you, you just can't continue. So as I went through all of the different things that I was able to do in my career, my goodness, was I blessed because I like variety. I am not good with predictability nine to five, definitely not Roger. And so wearing different hats within the career was wonderful. I got to work uh, as a SWAT officer for a number of years, and I was in the lead assault position, so first guy through the door kind of person. Mm. Uh, I worked on a street crimes unit where we focused on street level gangs, narcotic sales, prostitution in the most troubled neighborhoods. Uh, I got to work in the traffic division as a motor officer and accident investigator. I got to do detective work and background investigation work, so that was wonderful. I was able to become a defensive tactics trainer, firearms trainer, EVOC trainer, taser trainer, and ultimately became the department's training manager, 
where I managed 30 instructors and we had a very, very robust training program, uh, one of the best in the state of California. And on and on it went. I mean, I just, I pretty much got to do darn near mm -hmm. everything you can do. And so much fun doing all these different jobs, wearing all these different hats. But I really got inspired uh, when I went through the California Master Instructor Development Program. Mm -hmm. So that's a year-long training program in how to build and design and present training. It's at a master's level. And so then I started to build and design wellness programs for law enforcement because I realized, you know, at, by about the age of 40, most of the officers were not looking too good, not feeling too good, really out of sorts in their body, their mind, their spirit. And, you know, by the time they retired, train wrecks, and it was not uncommon for them to be dead within five years of that retirement. I thought we got to do something different. So, well, first of all, wow, you had the gamut of all the different fun jobs within a police career, for sure. Um, and I and I definitely am with you on the, you know, the teaching and instructing part and how valuable and rewarding that can be. Uh, so tell me just a little bit more about the wellness programs you put together after you went through that training. Was that something that you did with your agency before you left your career after? I know you're still doing that, but because... That, that's just that sounds very forward thinking, because um, even though I know we're talking about it right now, it's not really something that you heard much of, you know, before. I'll tell you that uh, I've been told many times that I'm ahead of my time mm -hmm. and I just seem to continue that trend. When I went through the master instructor program, one of the requirements was you had to put on a 24 hour training that you developed start to finish. Wow. And, you know, they had panels reviewing it. And so and it had to be taught at a level that all of California law enforcement could be experiencing that training. So you mm -hmm. put together these binders and quite robust. So I wanted to do wellness and I submitted my proposal. I had to get approved by California Peace Officer Standards and Training to say, yes, you can develop this training model. So I submitted my proposal for wellness and it was going to be in eight hours of fitness and eight hours of nutrition and an eight hours of then stress management which we now call mindfulness and resiliency mm -hmm. so those three and it was targeted to that midpoint in the career officer who who'd lost some of that you know folks coming out of the academy are fairly squared away i wanted to help officers at that midpoint thrive to the end of their career when i submitted that proposal to california post they rejected it and, what? Yes. And here is a direct quote. We do not feel there's a need for wellness training in law enforcement. End quote. Wow. So what year is this? That was 2000. Not that long ago. Wow. Okay. I so I wrote post back and I said, look, if I can prove there's this need, if I can do a, a needs assessment and validate this, will you allow me to do it? They said, yes. And that was actually relatively easy to do. And I was given permission to do it. Now, fast forward 21 years later, there are multiple programs in California law enforcement oriented to wellness, mindfulness, that kind of thing. So we have definitely come a long way. But to give you an idea of where the resistance was, my God, if I mentioned the word yoga or meditation, 
I might be in trouble. And yeah. I'm certainly going to get laughed out of a classroom back then. Mm -hmm. So I learned different semantics to get this sold, you know, and we made some progress and it opened some doors. When I developed the training and began teaching it, that was one aspect. But in my own department, I was very blessed with a chief who was a very forward thinking human being. And I came to him when I became the department's training manager. And that was also in 2000. And I said, hey, I want to create a wellness coordinator position. Now, it took me three years to get that approved, but we got it. And oh, wow. for the last 20 years, they've had a wellness coordinator on staff, and it has made a tremendous difference. Wow, that's amazing. And good for you for, for sticking with it. So I'm curious, back in 2000, how is it that you proved to them that there was a need? How did you convince them? What I did was I went to the corporate sector because there really was not much happening in law enforcement at that mm -hmm. time. And I found a company, a niche company called Wellness Solutions, and they had worked their way into a few fire agencies, which tend to be more fitness oriented. You know, they, they even have on duty time to exercise where officers typically don't. And they had collected a whole ton of statistics from corporate America showing the ROI the return on that investment. So it came down to for every dollar you invest in a well-run wellness program, you can expect a three to $12 return on that investment. And then we, once we satisfied the bean counters, I was in. And, you know, at first I tried, oh, come on, it's for the good. This is what we should be doing. <laughs> that didn't work at all. When I finally got down to counting beans, they're like, oh, we can make money off this? Great, go do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's brilliant. Just just making it about money. And it's sad, but I guess obviously it worked, right? <laughs> I, I really have no problem with whatever gets my foot in the door. <laughs> wow, awesome. So is this and maybe I'm shifting gears too soon, but I, I did see on the cover of your book that um, that it's based on the heroes project, the eight pillars of wellness. Is that is that what you're referring to here? Well, this, that particular aspect is Dr. Renee Thornton, my co-author okay. of the book. That is her project. Okay. And it's founded on the essential eight pillars of wellness. And when we look at these pillars, you know, most of us are okay in a few areas, right? It's, it's seldom that we're a train wreck across the board. Mm -hmm. Like we may have good spiritual capital and economic capital, but maybe our psychological capital is, is down we get an opportunity to really kind of assess that. And when we start raising the bar in the areas that were low in those pillars, that's where life becomes more resilient. You can navigate mm -hmm. those adversities with just a lot more ease and grace. But what we seldom realize is how low we are in some of those pillars, right? Mm -hmm. We don't really think about the idea. And people always kind of get tweaked about like, well, spiritual, ooh, you know, mm -hmm. it's like, well, wait a minute. Spirituality was framed by Rabbi Kerry Friedman as something that I will never forget. And I had him on my podcast because I just thought this was phenomenal for our community that can often disconnect from religious institutions, dogma, that kind of thing. He said, no, spirituality is about having an absolute value system. I said, mm -hmm. oh, that's really interesting. Can you expand that? He said, sure. You might believe in the tenets of Judaism or Christianity, or you may hang your hat 
on the tenets of our United States Constitution. You may think that that is such an incredible document that that is your absolute value system, something beyond the self, right? And so that's what each of the eight pillars is designed to do. It's designed to give you a really good look into what is it that makes you really healthy in each of those areas, and then you can decide which ones you want to raise your bar on, and now you're more balanced across that whole spectrum, and that should allow life to become a little bit more navigable. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. Well, that's, yeah, I can't wait for us to talk about that a little bit more. I didn't mean to get you you off track. So with the wellness program that you put together successfully, obviously, and implemented it into your agency, I'm assuming? We did. Uh, how, how did that go at first? What was that like? <laughs> you knew I was going to ask that question. <laughs> For sure. And, and I think a pretty predictable answer is about to come, right? It was uh, met with a lot of skepticism. Mm-hmm. And we don't need it. And, you know, that kind of thing. And the guy that I hired, and he won't mind me calling him out, his name is Jim Jarvis. And Jim was in his early 20s, had a master's in exercise physiology, and loved police officers just mm-hmm. loved them so he came in so we got the young guy and one of the first things he did was he offered a blood pressure screening that's it just something so simple right now we had a 300 member department and interestingly 175 members took him up on the blood pressure screening mm-hmm. that's pretty good that is very good 50 percent came back with high blood pressure Let's think about that for a minute. Of Mm -hmm. 175 personnel, 50% tested high on blood pressure. What was the reaction to that? He's too young. His equipment doesn't work. I feel fine. And they went home and complained to their significant others. Their significant others said, go to the doctor, get checked. Many of them came back with blood pressure medications. Two of them were admitted to the hospitals that afternoon and had cardiac surgery and saved two lives. (gasps) Wow. That just gave me chills. I'm going to tell you that after that, the program took off because Mm -hmm. they're like, wow, this kid really, really did some good work there. Let's stop pushing him away. Let's accept this. And ever since then, he's just done a fabulous job. Wow. So is this, so he's your wellness coordinator? Is that, that's what his position is? And he's still there today. He just left that position and he has moved up to Oregon to start a whole new chapter of his life. Uh, But the wellness position, you know, is going to continue in that agency. It's been invaluable. And like I said, when you can really point out the return on investment, Mm -hmm. how we lower workers' compensation claims, how accidents and injuries drop, recovery from things increase, how sick days are dropping. When you look across the board, it's a no-brainer to have that position. No-brainer. Yeah. And so it sounds like his background and what his role was, was to focus on nutrition and the physical aspects of health. That's correct. correct. Great. Okay. Now we augmented that with something interesting too. So we also had a chaplaincy program. Great. And, you know, the chaplains are Mm non-denominational. They are not there to proselytize or try to convert you to anything. It's not like that. And in the first two years, they are ostracized. Every time they come into a department, it's like, oh, great, the God guy's here, Mm -hmm. you know. Uh, But what they do is embed themselves. 
and over they're very patient oh my god these people are the most <laughs> patient people on earth but they do ride-alongs and they listen and then pretty soon the trust is formed and i have to tell you that i have seen this over and over in other agencies as well chaplaincy is more effective than peer support and more effective than employee assistance programs even with culturally competent psychologists the officers tend to trust the chaplain more than any other aspect of those systems and i have seen that be an absolute game changer in an agency why do you think that is oops were you able to hear me oh there you are you're coming back now yeah sorry about that i got a message that something was up with the connection so why do you think that is why do you think that that the chaplains are so much more successful than the other programs you mentioned I think there's a couple of reasons, Wendy, and, and one of them is when you look at peer support, it's the people that you work with. And, you know, everybody that has pushed back on that and given me feedback has said, I don't want my peers knowing my stuff. They feel vulnerable. And then with a the police psychologist, there's still a stigma that if they get labeled with something like post-traumatic stress, that suddenly they won't be trusted, that their agency will not promote them, etc. Like there's still a lot of stigma around needing help. And of course, I think the other aspect of it is we, we hold ourselves at such a high standard, a ridiculously impossible to obtain standard that somehow we're not human, that we're above all of it. I read recently, and I, I can't remember the source or I'd cite it for you directly, but the average human being in the course of a lifetime might experience one to two trauma events as just a normal person going through their life. And a first responder, which of course is fire, EMS, officers, may experience in a 20 to 30 year, year career 500 to 800 critical incidents. Uh, let's hold on for a minute and do some math right there, right? Yeah. You think that at the end of that journey, you're not going to be changed? You're not going to be affected by the trauma, the human dysfunction? And a chaplain represents someone who, first of all, has a sacred communication trust. They cannot divulge any of those pieces of information, right? And secondly, they don't judge. And I think that's the piece that really feels safe to the officers. That lack of judgment causes them to feel like I can open up here and be safe. Mm. Yeah, it, no, it makes sense. Uh, you know, I've, I've heard that we don't have a chaplain program at the agency that I work in, but it's something that we're looking to, to incorporate within peer support. And we also have a, a pretty robust EAP with culturally competent clinicians. So it, it's interesting to hear your take on the chaplaincy piece because it is kind of that missing link, in my opinion, of what we need to, to have at our agency. So so thank you for, for sharing that because I think that was really important for oh, yeah, the listeners sure. to hear. Third leg of the stool. <laughs> yeah, there you go. I like that. Exactly. Uh, so fast forward a little bit and you said you retired kicking and screaming if I'm using your your words correctly. Um, so so tell us about um, the end of your career. Yeah, well, I loved my job and I had found my niche in training. It, it's just where I shine. It's my genius area. Great. And um, 
at that time we were experiencing budgetary challenges. You know, I started off with a budget of 330,000, the second year 220,000, the third year 110,000, and I'm supposed to get all the training done that I was under that big budget I had. Um, and the very first position when you're robbing Peter to pay Paul was to send training back to the street. And uh, so I did, and then I just got involved in a number of uh, critical incidents, and something interesting happens as you age in law enforcement, the demographic you arrest stays 18 to 24. And so uh, in spite of taking really good care of myself, uh, I'm, I eat really well, I exercise, I do yoga, I do all the stuff, I ended up with a very severe back injury. and. I rehabbed myself a few times, but it, it was vulnerable. And on the last one, I had a little come to Jesus talk with my doctor who said, if I don't retire you, the next time I see you, you'll be in a wheelchair. Oh, boy. And I said, okay, must be time to go and do something else. I'm being called to go somewhere else, so I'll accept that. Uh, but I didn't want to leave my career. I was very happy in my job. Yeah. And, and that's, you bring up a good point because I think so many, so often, uh, things like that happen to a lot more people, at least that I know. Uh, and it's not something you ever expected. You know, usually in this line of work, we, we just think that we're going to be in it for the long haul, 25, 30 years in some cases. And, um, that was very unfortunate that that happened to you, but it, but it also brings up the point, like you said, maybe I'm being called to do something else. And, and so really the importance of having people think about things like that, although they may not want to about if this job ended for you today, whether or not it be an injury, or maybe you just want to leave it because that's your choice, or maybe it's something that's not within your control. Exactly. Uh, you know, and, and that's part of the book. Part of the mm -hmm. book is to, Oh, see, I didn't even know that. <laughs> absolutely. And, and I think it's a really key thing. It's just give this a moment's thought what if and what would you do and are you okay financially do you even know what benefits are available to you and so part of the book is you know doing exercises that give you a broader scope of information that you can then make a decision that's all uh but this future planning thing we all think that that won't be us and uh, i certainly didn't think it would be me Right. So here you are, you're at the doctor's office, you have this come to Jesus meeting. And then what, what happens next for you? How, how, I mean, cause obviously your, your, your path to where you are, it took a little bit of time. So I imagine that had to have been a rough, a rough day for you to know that it was time to go. It is a rough day and it's a strange thing to give your identity up. And one of the things that I think was the most difficult, you have these wonderful close relationships that you develop. But about three months after you're gone, you're kind of off the island. And it's not that, that people don't want to see you. It's just that you're over there now and they're still in service. And so they're around the people that they're around. They're connecting. But you kind of get forgotten really quickly. And suddenly you realize your identity, which is nobody says, I practice law enforcement for the city of. They say, I am am a cop right so so suddenly that identity's ripped away and what you hung your hat on as how you navigate the world isn't there anymore and the people you knew and were very close and intimate with are just not in your life as much and everybody i know who's retired has gone through this this is not a roger anomaly here this is normal 
and there's that moment where you're like, oh, wow, what's left? And I retired, you know, after 20 years of service. So I was still relatively young. I was 46. Well, now what? And I thought, well, the master instructor program has set me up to be able to move forward and continue to train in this wonderful area of stress management, mindfulness, resilience. And so I put together training programs. I wrote a book. My first book was called The Warrior's Mantra which was how to use the ancient practice of mantra to survive critical incidents. Uh, I began just exploring that and putting myself out there and putting on training programs. And pretty much that's what I've been doing ever since. Well, you, you really did turn your, you know, your adversity in, you know, into success. If that's, if that's a good way to say it, I don't know, but um, because, you know, overcoming things like that isn't easy. And, you know, I have, I have talked to a lot of people who've retired lately and some of them are doing better than others, but I think it's really important that you talked about that police identity issue. Cause we so oftentimes over identify with our, with our roles as police officers. And I know this personally, I didn't think that that would happen to me when I retired in 2019. Uh, you know, I'm a mom, I'm a, you know, I'm happily married. I have these two beautiful kids. I practice yoga. I teach yoga. I do all these things. I have friends that are outside of law enforcement, friends that are in law enforcement. And man, that hit me. I did not expect it at all. I was no longer Detective Hummel because I was a detective a majority of my career. And I didn't realize how much I identified with that part of my life. And you know, at first I felt a lot of shame around it. I didn't talk about it. I was super embarrassed. I'm like, what is this all about? And, um, and now of course, like you, I'm very open about it. And the more I talk about it, people still aren't talking about it. I think we're talking about it more. Whenever I learn that someone's going to retire, it's one of the things I bring up in conversation because, you know, a lot of times people won't expect that. And, and I'm not saying that some people don't necessarily feel that way. They're set up. They've, they've done a really good job of, of, you know, making plans and they're ready to go. But I find more, more often, more times than not, that people do have experience a little bit of that. Definitely. You know, one of the greatest pieces of advice came to me through Dr. Kevin Gilmartin and his book, Emotional Survival for Law Enforcement. And it was develop friendships outside of the career. Yes develop hobbies and things that you love to do that you're passionate about before you retire so that those things are in place for a more graceful transition. And that is spot on advice. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. You know, it's so amazing that he wrote that book so long ago and it's still so relevant today. It, it you know, it's that information is still so good. So valuable. I, I was so blessed when I left the career I was uh, able to meet Dr. Gil Martin at a seminar he was putting on, and I told him what I was planning to do. And he's, he, you know, and it's a sound like I'm tooting my own horn, but I just appreciated the nod. He said, you know, you're the future because I'm bringing awareness, but you're bringing solutions. Mm. And because I kind of turned the model upside down that, you know, Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman and Dr. Gil Martin were the big players at that time and, and still are. And they were bringing that awareness piece of, look, this is what it's doing to us. And I thought, well, let's do instead of awareness, since they've already done it, let me give you 90% techniques. 
that mm -hmm. we can actually implement right away, right? So that's always been my focus is let me give you a whole menu of really cool things that work. And I'm willing to jump down any woo-woo rabbit hole. I have done stuff that would shock you probably. And uh -huh. I've done it in a search <laughs> for what works. And a lot of the stuff out there in the self-help communities, frankly, it's a lot of hyperbole and it doesn't really work. But I filter that and then I bring back the best that I know is actually going to make a tangible result in someone's life. And then I introduce that into the community in a way that makes it safe and not woo-woo, so to speak. Right, because that's important. It's all about the delivery with this, with this population. 100%. So in the book, if we could switch gears just a little bit, because I know you talk about a lot of these things in the book that you co-wrote with uh, Dr. Thornton, right? Yeah. And you talk about um, an incident in particular, because you're very open about the fact that you overcame your PTSD diagnosis. And I think it's very important for people to hear you talk about that, if you don't mind sharing, because I think you refer to it as a triggering incident. So maybe it was one incident that kind of broke everything open. Big time. Yeah, big time. So uh, I'll just give you a, a broad overview of the event itself, because I think a lot of your listeners are going to relate to mm -hmm. these pieces that kind of assemble into, oh, that's how that happened. So it was a work week where I was in the traffic division as a motor officer, but that week I was in a squad car because we had a sheriff's deputy who was starting with us as a new officer. He had never taken an accident report in his entire career because they had a contract with the California Highway Patrol who took all the accidents. So he was with me for a week of training. We did nothing but traffic accident investigation to get him up to speed. And it's our Friday. It's been a long week. And about five minutes to quitting time, a call comes in of a major accident at an intersection in our city at commute hour and it sounded like it was pretty severe. So there was no other accident investigation team on at that time. That's just the way it goes. And off we go. So we start rolling to this call. As we're rolling along, the dispatcher, who's like a 30-year dispatcher, you know, eye of the storm person, never rattled, is rattled. You can mm -hmm. hear it in her voice. Said, we're receiving multiple calls. This sounds like there are multiple injuries involved. We are dispatching multiple fire and ambulance units. Any officers that can respond, please respond. We kick it up a notch. So now I'm driving quickly through commute traffic. And then a tone alert comes on. Now, when we get a tone alert, three beeps, doot, 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 that means some serious stuff's going down. And that's where everyone listens to the radio no matter what's going on, right? And the tone alert is any officer that can respond to this intersection begin to respond. Thinking to myself, what the hell? And then the dispatcher says in a shaky voice, we may have multiple fatalities. Thinking to myself, holy crap, man, what, a commute hour? Commute, traffic grinds so slowly. I'm mm -hmm. thinking, how is this possible? So I get there and I'm one of the first people to arrive. And what I see it does not make sense to my conscious mind. So I'm at the end of my week. I am tired. I've just driven code three through commute traffic. My adrenaline is surging. My heart rate is very high, and I'm now looking at something that I don't understand. The debris field is 900 feet long. There are multiple cars involved in this crash and people in various stages of injury. We're going to have to triage. 
and it looks to me like maybe a small airplane tried to land on the roadway. That's that's just the scope of it. And I'm so I am now overwhelmed to the point where I don't know what to do. Now this is key. Normally, when you've had as many years on as I'd had at that point, you're just in control. You've been there. You've done that. You just do what you need to do. I don't even know where to start. So I am now completely overwhelmed. I'm in sympathetic nervous system dominance. I am dumping cortisol and adrenaline, and I am deer in a headlight. I don't know what to do. I see a car that looks more mangled than most, and I noticed firefighters are frantic around this car. They're getting the jaws of life. They're, they're going to do something significant. I thought, well, hell, I'll just start there. So I run to the car, keeping my elevated heart rate going. My partner, he stages right there where we pulled in to stop any further cars from getting into this accident scene because it's just enormous. I run to the car. When I look inside, I see a man whose head is against the steering wheel, bleeding unconscious. I see what we later identified as a female in the passenger seat she had liquefied from direct impact. I look in the back seat, there's three children. And when I look inside, two of the kids are my daughters. Ooh. Oh my gosh. So I pause for a minute, I go into shock, I stop breathing. My heart rate soared well above 175 beats a minute. I am now at the edge of panic. I'm about to lose it. Mm -hmm. I shake my head. I think to myself, impossible. Can't be my daughters. They're home at this time of day. I don't recognize this car. That cannot be possible. I look back inside. It's not my daughters. Mm -hmm. What had happened was my mind was hijacked by the amazing amount of chemicals flooding my body and it projected my worst fear which be, those are my kids. The two girls in the backseat happen to be the same ages as my daughters. Mm -hmm. So my mind just constructed and projected this, you know, this illusion. Uh, and there I am with this perceptual reality distortion. Mm -hmm. I shake that off and I look back in the car and the firefighters are removing an infant out of a car seat. And they just take the whole car seat out, set it on the ground and cover it with a tarp. I am incredulous. What are you doing? You need to help the baby. They're looking at me like, are you out of your mind? Once again, my mind tried to protect me this time. I couldn't see trauma on the baby. It looked like a perfect sleeping infant in a car seat. It was clear to everyone else the baby was gone. Clear. Mm. So I stepped back and I had no idea what to do. I'm literally standing there just with my jaw slack. I, I am shocked at this point. And a sergeant comes up to me and says, what the hell are you doing? I go, I don't know what to do. I just literally was just, I don't know what to do, Sarge. Take pictures. Great. So I go take pictures. And now I'm on that scene for the next 20 hours. Wow. End of a 40-hour work week, 20 more hours straight before I'm released to go home. I came back almost uh, immediately after a very short rest period. I spent three weeks investigating that crash, interviewing people, going over the details day after day after day, driving it deeper into my psychology. Fast forward five years, I've moved on. I'm good. Back to normal, here we go. And now it's time for the deposition. So I go into the office, there's a judge and 18 attorneys representing all the people in this crash. 
it's one of those silly things like you see on TV, the bright mahogany table that's just shine. You think that's all fake? No, it's actually real. And here I am. It's I, I am chum in the water of 18 sharks, right? Everybody wants a piece of me because they've all got a big stake in this thing and it's a civil litigation. There's a stack of photos, the photos I took. They say to me, we'd like you to go over every photo and tell us what's in that. What do you think the first photo was? Mm. Right. It was the car. I left the building in my mind and I had a 100% flashback to the scene. I am telling you that in real time, I left that room in my mind and I was back at the scene, hearing the screams, smelling the smells, seeing the sights. I was 100% flashed back to the scene. I relived it. When I came back, I am now back in the room in my mind I came back I'm looking around I'm crying I don't know why I'm crying I have no juxtaposition between those two points in time and I have 18 people and a judge with their jaws open going what just happened I just pushed my chair back and walked out now to their credit no one tried to stop me and I'm gonna tell you thank God because I honestly don't know what I'd have been capable of doing at that moment in time I realized I was in trouble so I made a call to our EAP immediately. I knew, I just knew that I had to get help right now. So I did that and I went and experienced talk therapy with a 30 year police psychologist. And at the end of six sessions, she said, you know, you're the most severe case of post-traumatic stress disorder I've seen in my 30 years. This isn't getting it done. There's a new experimental therapy. We don't know how it works. We don't even know why it works, but we know it works. Wanna try it? I said yes, and why I said yes was a bit risky because it meant outing myself to my department. Those six visits were anonymous, but not this. I had to get approval. That meant outing myself, and at that time, the stigma of that, ugh, not so good. So it was a choice between career suicide or literal suicide. Here's what I realized, and I'm, I want your audience to understand this. For the five years after that event, I had been actively trying to kill myself every single day and didn't realize it. How? By doing high-risk behavior, adrenaline-soaking behavior. I used to road race motorcycles, do full contact martial arts, do downhill mountain biking with not a care of my life. I would rush into calls for service, jump calls, not wait for backup. And what kept happening was I kept winning. And the department noticed the behavioral change and their response to that, no fault of theirs, they didn't understand these things in that time. What they did was give me attaboys. I got awards and commendations for being super cop. And in reality, that behavioral change was significantly different from who I was. I was a person who followed the book, policies, procedures to the letter. I was spot on and suddenly I wasn't and I got rewarded for it so the behavior got enabled and it continued. The radical new therapy I experience is now a treatment standardized in post-traumatic stress disorder and that's EMDR. And so I was one of the first people in the country to go through it and one of the six practitioners in the country happened to be in my city and what a blessing. It took about six sessions and I was liberated from the chains of that post-traumatic stress disorder. It was a miracle for me. But here's another piece I want your audience to understand. 
I went in for that single event. Six more came out of me during treatment that I did not know were in there, buried in there. I had no idea. They just were vomiting out of me in a way. And I thought those things were not a problem. I thought I'd moved on from them. No, no, they were in my psychology, hidden, waiting for the moment to release and to become part of the problem. And in fact, really, if you look at it, it was cumulative. All those things led me to mm -hmm. that moment. So when I had that trigger happen, I realized there are so many of my brothers and sisters who have this trigger waiting for them too. And if I can teach them aspects of mindfulness, resiliency, and understanding that seeking help is not a stigma, it's a strength, then that was my mission. That's why I call it a triggering event. It turned the course of my life to dedicate the rest of it to helping people understand these truths through my own journey. Wow. So I don't even know what to say right now. I have so many things going through my head, but thank you so much for, for share, sharing all of that. Um, for receiving it. Yeah. And I, I told you this earlier that I purposefully did not read that in the book because I, I just, you know, I just wanted it to be natural. And yeah, I mean, so what you said, though, on so many levels makes me think about so many people that come to mind that I know. Um, and one thing, you know, actually just, just today we released a podcast and I, I interviewed a police psychologist. And one thing that you said, uh, really reminded me of what a term she used. She may, it's kind of funny, but she called it the hairball of trauma. And she said, <laughs> and, uh, and I just love that. Um, Dr. Jennifer Prohaska, she's awesome, but she talks about how, you know, the first hair might be really hard to get untangled from that big ball and when you were talking about that and going to EMDR and, and getting through that incident and then noticing all these other incidents that came up. And she, she even said, once you get that through that first one, those others become easier, not that they're easy, but they become easier. And, and yeah, the self-destructive behavior. Um, another guest of mine said the same exact thing. His story is different, but it's the same result. You know, his unresolved trauma led to his self-destructive behavior. And so many first responders, they don't even realize that the things that you just described, those off-duty adrenaline-seeking activities that we do, and obviously things that we do, calls that we go on, um, maybe without backup, um, can really be a sign of something deeper. So thank you so much for saying that and putting it into perspective for those people who may not even realize or, or don't realize that that's what's going on. Yeah, you know, I, I get asked the question a lot, you know, why the adrenaline-seeking behaviors? Mm -hmm. And for me, and I, I want to, you know, say this so that if somebody's listening and they go, oh, God, that's me, you know, maybe it's time to just talk to somebody about that. By the way, I'm a fan that from the beginning of your career, we should be seeing a culturally competent psychologist twice a mm -hmm. year for a checkup. You get your teeth checked a couple times a year. You see a doctor physical mm -hmm. once a year. Go do that, friends. Just get a baseline so they know you and then they can spot when things are starting to shift. Early intervention is the key to being able to unwind that damn hairball a lot easier. <laughs> you know you're going to say that from now on, don't you? Oh, yeah. I, I got the hairball now. <laughs> but uh, the adrenaline seeking was because if my life was on the line, my mind had to singularly focus. And in that zone, so to speak, the demons couldn't come. 
-hmm. when I got quiet, the demons came and I didn't want to face the demons. A lot of my friends muted those demons with alcohol and drugs, right? That was another choice that some took to mute the demons. Me, I did it with extreme exercise, pushing myself constantly, doing crazy things that required me to not be quiet and then those things would come and I didn't want to face them. They, it's scary. It's a scary place. Well, and you bring up another really good point that addiction isn't just, I mean, a lot of first responders struggle with addiction to alcohol, uh, but that's not the only kind of addiction that we can have. Exactly. So switching gears just a little bit, because I really want to make sure we talk about your book. Uh, you talk about, you mentioned this already, but one of the things in the book you discuss in detail is your personal practice of mindfulness and meditation. And maybe how putting it into context for some people um, who are not familiar with it and might be actually kind of against it, uh, how that could, how that can help to balance out or I don't know if ward off is the right word, but like that, that adre those adrenaline seeking behaviors and how that can be beneficial. Yeah. You know, the way I like to think of it is imagine you've got a washing machine and you got a load of towels in there and they're all on one side. And that machine is now wonking against the wall, right? Wacka, 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 wacka. We want to even out the load. Now in our job, we are experiencing a higher degree of that cortisol stimulated fight or flight response, right? And frankly, we love it. I mean, if we didn't love that, we wouldn't be first responders in the first place. So we tend to seek it, but we can also become addicted to those hormones of stress, right? So now we're in this sympathetic nervous system dominance. And what that does is wears us down over time. This is really what breaks us down at the end of our career where we're mentally, physically, and spiritually bankrupt. Mm -hmm. So I want to even out those loads, right? And to do that, we want the rest and digest side of the fence to happen, parasympathetic restoration. We don't want to wait for parasympathetic backlash, which is where we tank and mm -hmm. we got nothing left. We're curled up on the floor sucking our thumb at that point, right? We want restoration. And so... What I teach is mindfulness practices that allow parasympathetic restoration. And this, of course, involves one aspect of mindfulness, which is the M word, meditation. Da, da, da. Uh oh, you, know, you said it. I said it. I'll tell you, 20 years ago, people would be like, oh, that's a bunch of hippie stuff. We're starting to accept it now because mm -hmm. we see special forces operators learning transcendental meditation, Navy mm -hmm. SEALs. Like, yeah. what? And we see that ancient cultures who had warrior cultures also mm -hmm. practiced it. The Shaolin, for example, in China, the Japanese samurai, and other cultures have practiced meditation as part of their training. We realize it is a balance for the warrior. And so how do we make that safe? And how do we make it to dispel this myth that we have to do hours and hours of it a day. We got to sit and stare at a candle flame while a guru rubs patchouli oil on our feet and we sit in a cave in the Himalayas. No, <laughs> no, that's just not doable, right? So how do we create something that allows an experience to really be felt inside the body, to calm the body and not allow the demons to come too, right? This is restoration. It's a very different aspect. So 
believe it or not, you can do it in three minutes. Three minutes of mindfulness practice can give you a parasympathetic response in the body for up to six hours, friends. Wow! Talk about counterbalancing your washing machine load. Would you like to know how to do it? I do. <laughs> yeah. So, so I love that explanation because, um, on your podcast, which I want to make sure we talk about you, uh, you talked about this very same thing and you walked your listeners through the practice that I hope you're going to walk us through here in a minute. And I love the way that you explain that is that just by doing this for three minutes, it counts for six hours. And that's amazing. I think that's really important for you to repeat. Can you say that again? Go ahead, say it. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> it, it's just the most incredible return on investment. You know, I, I mm -hmm. always get this pushback. I don't have time. You got three minutes. And I'll tell you another way that I use it. I use it as a transition now between things. So, mm -hmm. for example, let's just say you took a, a rape call. It's a hard call. A lot of stuff's involved there. You got to show a lot of empathy, compassion. Compassion fatigue is real. Mm -hmm. What if after that call, before you go back in service, you sat in your car, kept your eyes open because you don't have to have them closed, and did three minutes of restoration? Mm -hmm. What if after every call, you did three minutes of restoration? Who would you be at the end of that day when you come home to your family? And you put on the new hat of mom, dad, brother, sister, son, daughter, niece, nephew, partner, lover, whatever it is you are, to become fully that. And for three minutes to gain six hours of parasympathetic restoration is to even out that washing machine load. It's a game changer and anyone can do it. It's not hard to learn. Yes, you are absolutely right. You know, probably it's a little bit different, but one of the things that we teach in... Um, yoga for first responders, but whenever I teach resilience, we always go through some sort of a breathing technique specifically. And for the same exact reasons that you're explaining, so I don't need to go get into it. But, but at this point, if you don't mind, um, maybe just because we're talking about it, would you, for the listeners that have never experienced this sort of thing before, would you just briefly walk us through that and and I'm just going to go along and do it as you say it. So I'm happy to do it. So let me stage okay. you a little bit. And if you're driving or operating a chainsaw right now, come back to this recording later because you're going to get really <laughs> quiet and mellow for a minute. And what we want to do is a couple of things. I'm going to have you, as you do the breathing for three minutes, you're going to breathe through your nose. The reason for that is that stimulates the dorsal vagal complex, which is a fancy way of saying we become parasympathetic when we breathe through the nose. So we breathe nasally. And I'm going to ask you to breathe with a relaxed diaphragm. Don't hold anything. Just, just let the whole diaphragm area relaxed. So, you know, if you've got a little case of Dunlop's disease where your belly is done lopping over your belt, you can be proud of that bad boy today, right? The little muffin top's okay. Just let it be totally chill. And so we're also going to either close our eyes or just kind of let your eyes soften. Like they say in yoga, take a lazy gaze where you're not really focused on anything in particular. So the breathing pattern for you is going to be inhale for approximately five seconds through the nose as quietly as you can so that you can't even hear your own breathing. 
and then exhale through the nose for another five. Now don't get caught up on the numbers, but approximately five in, five out gives us six breaths a minute. And when we reduce our respirations to six breaths a minute, we are also invoking the parasympathetic side of the autonomic nervous system. So nasal breathing and six breaths a minute is really optimal. We're going to breathe directly into the center of our chest, right in the area of our heart. So the breath comes in gently through the nose, approximately five in, five out. We breathe into the center of the chest, just a little deeper, a little slower than usual. And here's what I'd like you to do. I'd like you to have someone that you love or something that you appreciate deeply in your life in your mind's eye while you're also breathing into the center of the chest. Maybe it's your son or daughter, or maybe it's your favorite pet, a fond memory, something that you have gratitude and appreciation for, and you can feel that gratitude and appreciation. Once you have that person in your mind, breathe that feeling of love or gratitude or appreciation also into the center of the heart. And just do that for a couple of minutes here. And as you're breathing, just know that you're relaxing. And if you notice tension anywhere in the body, just allow that tension to just soften and dissolve like it's turning to cotton. And just notice Whatever thoughts come up, that's okay. If you lose your train of thought for any moment on this process, at any point you want, just come back to your breath, that feeling of gratitude for the person or thing that you love or feel appreciation for. And as you breathe directly into the center of your chest, just allowing that body to go, ah. Whenever you feel ready, just come back to present time and notice whatever it is you notice in your body. Wendy, what are you noticing as you kind of feel into that? Uh, I just feel completely relaxed. Right. I, I've let, I, I'm the kind of person that uh, I usually have a lot of tension in my gut. That's where I hold it. And, and I actually try to do this sort of thing several times throughout the day and really just very easily release a lot of that tension. So I appreciate that. It's a super simple way to do it. And here's a caution. It's so simple that many people will dismiss the power of it. Nope. That's what I do. I go into these woo-woo rabbit holes. I go into all this complexity and then I bring back the gem that's super easy to implement because we don't have a lot of time, friends. I know we're busy with all kinds of life responsibilities. These little things are cumulative too. I think we can all agree stress accumulates over time. That is well documented, well proven, peer reviewed, no question. So are restoration practices. If it works on one side of the fence, it works on the other too. I say accumulate this throughout the day in little three minute breaks. You and I were talking before the show, I do this in meetings all the time. And what it does is actually improve my focus and concentration while I'm actually putting some money back in my resilience bank account. Mm -hmm. Here's how I look at resiliency. It's a bank account. We're draining it all the time. Sooner or later, we run out of funds. Then we're in low resiliency. 
now maybe we're in overdraft protection, right? We got to hit the caffeine and do whatever it is to stake up. Oh, and then we hit bankruptcy. And when we're in bankruptcy, we're in true trouble. Let's get ahead of the curve because as Gordon Graham said, predictable is preventable. So if we can accumulate money into our resiliency bank account, build on those pieces of capital in the eight pillars, well, we can handle the adversity that comes at us and it won't break us. It won't be that day where suddenly that final straw breaks the camel's back. You don't have to go there. And you can do it with practices just like this. So simple. Anybody can do what we just described. And you, you even have more of these micro practices in the book. So if people are interested in, in just like a little bit of what they just heard, um, I really, I personally recommend the book, Navigating Adversity, Tactical Self-Care. Love the title, by the way, for first responders. Very smart in the way that you name that. Well, you know, <laughs> spray paint it black and call it tactical and anybody will show up. <laughs> yeah, there you go. But it's that's really right. true. I want to, I want to be tactical about our self-care because yeah. that's what we are. We're warriors, right? We do the impossible. We do things that the average person in society can't even fathom. We do stuff every day people write books and movies about. Mm -hmm. And so we need to approach our self-care from a tactical perspective too, because that's our orientation. Be a warrior, be a full, well-rounded warrior. And that does not mean getting to the end of your career, burned out, pissed off, broken, physically, mentally, spiritually. No, a true warrior exits with pride, integrity, honor, and the ability to thrive in whatever chapters of their life are coming next. That's my goal. Well said. So if someone listening, besides getting your book, which I, again, 100% recommend, how else can they get a hold of you, work with you? Um, tell us just a little bit about your podcast, because that's another way people can, can listen to you and your guests is, and what platform they can do that on. Absolutely. So the podcast is on all the major podcasting platforms, and it is herotalk.org podcast. So you'll find it there. Uh, you can join me on Patreon, where I have a members-only website. And I did that because of the prying eyes of the public right now or something we'd probably all rather not deal with. So I get to vet everyone who comes into that community, and it is all first responder orientation. So it's a place where you can gain some additional information. It's a membership site, but it's it's five bucks a month. I mean, you know, give up one coffee and you're there. You can also email me directly, which is roger at herotalk.org. And Roger has a D in it, R-O-D-G-E-R. And one of the best places to get hold of me is also uh, on LinkedIn, where I have found our community you know, it's, it's one of the safest social media sites and a lot of law enforcement first responders go there because, well, it doesn't have the trolling that happens in other social media. So any of those, and my goodness, you are so welcome to reach out to me. If I can't help you directly, I have a lot of resources and I can point you in the right directions. If you've got questions about wellness programs or training programs on these things, anything at all, I am very happy to serve. This is what the remainder of my life will be. And until I can't do it anymore, I'm going to continue helping my brothers and sisters in the first responder community. Well, it's evident that you have that drive and passion to serve your fellow brothers and sisters. And I commend you for that. And I say thank you for that because we need so many more people that, that are willing to do that. 
Well, thanks for the opportunity to, you know, just share and have this beautiful conversation. And thank you for the work you're doing, your vast experience in this modality. This is how we all come together in collaboration and we begin to move the needle in the right direction. It's very needed right now. Our culture feels very abandoned right now and justifiably so. The more support that we can offer, you know, let's do that. Let's hold hands together and let's move forward because we need to do this. And our warriors, they're exceptional human beings. I want to see them thrive. Yeah, you and I have that common goal is to, to see them thrive, not just survive and make it to, you know, to the finish line. Yes. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Roger. My joy, Wendy. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you find value in the episode, please share it, give us a review. And if you'd like to be notified of future episodes, you can subscribe on our Podbean website or email us at wendy at bluelineyoga.com. I'd love to hear from you with questions, suggestions for future guests or topics you'd like to hear about, or if you'd like to learn more about my Radical Resilience program. If you want to build resilience and adaptability into your physiology by optimizing the rhythm of your daily habits, or you want to tap into your unique purpose and potential and learn these habits in a dynamic group setting, then this Radical Resilience program could be a good fit for you. 